Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. How are you, Paul? I'm terrific, Peter. Great to be here. Lots of, uh, particularly on a day when there's lots of news around property, and I think we've got some great guests today to... uh... Yeah, particularly, Paul, after the Wentworth by-election, where I reckon the big mistake that the Libs made was not to talk about Bill Shorten's potential Mm. policy on house prices. Well, he's got some very... uh, so-called negative negative policies for, mm. from an investor's point of view, the potential change to uh, negative gearing. Yep. It is going to be grandfathered, Peter, but mm. uh, it will apply to, uh, you know, um, houses going – or second ho- second secondary houses going forward. Mm. So what impacts that's going to have, plus the change to the capital gains tax discount. That's just one people don't talk about as much, but I think that's an even bigger impact. It could knock a few investors out of the market. It could indeed. So it would be interesting to see what uh, our first guest is going to say yep. about that and uh, some of the other things that he's uh, been looking at. Yeah, well, so you know, coming up uh, in the not-too-distant future is John McGrath, who I think knows a little th- thing or two about real estate. Uh, and then we'll be talking to uh, Bernie Deans, who's the Chief Executive of Industry Super Australia. Apparently a lot of employers, or not, or a fair few are, not actually paying their superannuation. So we'll talk about that later in the show, but... Without any further ado, John McGrath, thanks for joining us on the program. G'day, Peter. Hi, Paul. Hi, John. Hey, J- John, uh, just before we get into the McGrath Report, which is a fantastic read, I really recommend it for anyone who, who wants to see what's going on in the real estate world. Uh, but my view is, with you know, Bill Shorten's policies around negative gearing, is that even for the properties that have been grandfathered, eventually they have to come on the market. And it just seems to me a lot less investors will turn up to auctions or house showings when they know they can't negatively gear their properties. So I, I'm figuring that Bill's policies might be good for home buyers, but not for home sellers. Do you, do you think that that's the case, John? Yeah, I concur, Peter. I think that um, there's, there'll be a lot of people out there, investors and uh, people, current investors, that are quite concerned about it. I mean, none of us know what impact this has, but you know, property has had so many taxes laden upon it over the last 20 or 30 years. It's it's really you know, disincentivising people from what has been uh, really the golden goose that's helped so many Australians into financial freedom. So I think there is concern about that, and I agree. I heard your pre-comments with Paul that uh, it's probably something that the Liberals in Wentworth should have hammered a lot harder because that that is the heartland of people mm. that love investing in property. Yeah, exactly right. So let's just kick off with some of your interesting revelations. And I love the the first chapter, Has Uber Eats Shrunk the Kitchen? (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course, you know, uh, homes really just reflect the way people live. And many, many years ago, I mean, Pete, you and I remember back in the old Paddington days, everyone had a formal dining space at the front of the house. And then, but nowadays, uh, you know, dining and kitchen and even work areas have almost blended into one space. 
where people entertain and they cook the meal and they get on their, on their laptop computers and they do everything from that sort of kitchen area. So it's interesting how things change, but we, we have seen that, especially amongst the younger buyers, you know, some of them are having 21 meals out per week. You know, they're just having breakfast, lunch and dinner out and really the kitchen becomes, in some cases, almost a microwave. So it, it's interesting to see, and Adam Haddow, who's one of the directors and owners of SJB, Architects, he's he's given a few really interesting insights, and that that's definitely one of them. That um, you know, people, many people, especially younger people, are not using the kitchen as much as they used to. But I also think for the next generation up, of which perhaps the three of us might be involved in, you know, there are people that are actually seeing it's a kitchen, it's an entertaining space, and it's a workspace. It's a bit surprising, John, given all the cooking and food programs on <laughs> TV. True. So, uh, yeah. but do you think that leads onto things like apartments? Are apartments now becoming a little bit smaller because kitchens are smaller or becoming less functional? Is that uh, we're seeing yeah. any trends in the apartment market? 100%, Paul. I, th- I think it's, it's partly that, but it's also affordability. Uh, I mean, you know, people nowadays tend to price things on a square metre basis. And um, so, you know, the, the 65 square metre one bedroom apartments are now down to 50 square metres because people just can't simply, you know, they put 15,000 a metre, which is in Sydney anyway, it's, it's quite a constant rate for inner city uh, developments. And, you know, they're looking at the same, well, 750, 800,000 for a one better. Um, you know, that's an expensive, that's at 50 square metres, that's a very expensive one better. So I think um, the way people are living, but also the affordability issues have forced developers to go a little bit smaller. And again, uh, you know, the old 120 square metre two bedders are becoming 75, 80 square metre two bedders. So uh, there's definitely been a shift in size over the last uh, 10 years. John, do you think part of our problem, both in Sydney and Melbourne, is a supply problem where young people want to live? Yeah, look, I think uh, one of the issues is that you know they want to live somewhere, young people, but where they can afford is often somewhere else. So mm. some of them are looking to invest even outside of Sydney or outside of inner Sydney, and they're, they're looking to rent in inner Sydney or even stay at home, as you would know, mm. uh, you know through yourselves and friends, that that's quite a common uh, common theme as well. So I think there's no doubt that um, that is changing. It is hard. If you think about the average wage in Sydney at the moment and yet the median price close to the city, you're looking at a million dollars to even start talking to, to a, a seller or an agent you know, in that inner Sydney area and one-bedroom apartments are up around 750800 yeah. or above, as I've just said. So I, I think it is going to be a problem, but we are seeing one of our other themes is there's been a bit of a shift away from the city uh, in terms of both people living and also investing in, in areas like Wollongong, Newcastle and in Melbourne you've got Geelong, Sunshine Coast up north. There are, there are areas which are traditional regional areas that I think people are starting to say well I'll invest there or I'll even live there. So uh, there, there's definitely some activity happening around the generational change. Yeah, so you're saying in the third chapter of your report regional is the new black that that people are realizing and i gotta say we went to a friend's place a young couple's place yesterday in wollstonecraft and it was a two-bedroom apartment it was a nice apartment but they were saying that probably the starting price is 1.2 million for a two-bedroom apartment which is quite staggering so the, the looking at those regional areas makes a lot of sense doesn't it particularly if you can work there yeah, look, and for some people it's just the investment. Everyone, every Australian seems to want to get into property, which I think is a great, a great way to go. But um, you know, if you don't want to live in Wollongong, it's a damn good area to invest in, as is, is Newcastle, as is the Central Coast. 
So I think for people that, that may not be able to or may not even want to live in those rooms, it at least gives them something close to a major city that's affordable. And, uh, you know, the Central Coast, we've got our, our fastest-growing region up there at the moment is, is that Central Coast, Terrigal and Gosford and Surrounds. And it's just a fantastic area. If anything ever happens with the, the jet cap or a fast train that connects it and makes it even closer to Sydney, the prices will just overnight soar to greater levels. Now, you're not talking about all regions, John. I think you're talking about regions, what, really close to the uh, the major capitals. Is that right? Yeah, Paul, more of that. Look, I, I, there seems to be sort of a two-hour, if we're talking about close to the major cities, a two-hour because either people want to use it as a getaway or people want to have a sea change or a tree change to be close to the grandkids. They seem to kind of want to be in that ring from, you know, the Blue Mountains up to the Hunter region and down to sort of Berry in South. Mm. Um, and that that makes it still very accessible. Once you get a lot further out than that, it does become harder for people to stay in contact and visit and, and even work in the bigger cities. So I think that two-hour ring around Sydney is going to be where a lot of the uh, price action happens in the and, next 10 years. And is that the same with Melbourne and Brisbane and the other major capitals? It's identical. I mean, in, in, in uh, Brisbane, we look at the Gold Coast, which is the obvious boundary, as is the Sunshine Coast, and out to Toowoomba. Again, the, the, we call it the Golden Triangle. We think that that area, we, we actually called it a few years ago and it hasn't quite hit, hit its momentum yet. We've seen uh, some green shoots there, but I think that is still very affordable uh, area. And, and Brisbane itself, compared to Sydney, let's face it, Brisbane itself is still great value. Yeah, for sure. And are we seeing, well, I think during the period where Peter Beattie was the Premier, we continually talked about this shift of people from the southern states into that southeast um, corner of Queensland. Is that picking up again, John? It's it, exactly right, Peter. It started again during the GFC. It sort of fizzled out because I think everyone just sat on their hands. Mm. But now that we are, we've seen there's been a boom in Sydney and Melbourne in particular prices, there's been a strong migration up there and investors as well as people moving up there. So we've seen, you know, there's an interesting chart which I'll send you and it's got the sort of migratory path to uh, or increase in net population up in southeast Queensland, and it's the exact opposite. So they're leaving New South Wales in about the same uh, um, numbers as they're arriving in uh, Queensland. Mm. Now your second chapter is about another nicely named chapter. Shift, I say shift happens. Be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so and this is about like the metro giants are past their peak. Talk to that, mate. Well, look, you know, we've we've seen uh, 75 up to 100 percent, even some areas a little bit above 100 percent growth in in you know, so the Sydney and Melbourne market, and and they have decoupled somewhat from the rest of Australia. Although we have seen some healthy growth elsewhere as well. So, you know, there's been a number of factors there that have driven that, and there's a number of factors that have driven the correction. I mean, right now we are seeing. There's no doubt in my mind we've seen a 10 percent, you know, core logic. And the data companies are calling it at six or seven percent, but I think that's only because the settlement lag. As I'm speaking to our agents every day, there's ten and twelve percent, up to fifteen percent case studies of price drops in in the big cities, and certainly Sydney and Melbourne. Mm. So um, you know that's happening because investors. We just talked about investors; they have somewhat disappeared. We've got interest-only loans are getting harder to get your hands on, and they might be impossible to get your hands on for some people going forward and there's an expiry of a lot of those so yeah I think the big cities have you know they've kind of they've definitely hit a bit of a wall but I think at the end of it we're not calling any 30 40 percent but I could see a definite 15 percent correction hmm. across the board and I think we've probably seen two-thirds of that already 
But see, 15% is a lot less than 40%, John. Did you fall off your armchair when that 60 Minutes program came out with I that call? I couldn't watch it. I was, I'd be depressed <laughs> if I watched it. But no, I, did, I did hear about it. And uh, look, Peter, we've, we've seen this, and Paul, we've seen this over the years. Every time there's a market up and a market down, people talk about Sydney being 40% overvalued, mm. then it comes back by 10%, and then it goes, and then it doubles again 10 years later. Um, you know, these are big cities with strong demand, strong economies, and the overseas population that's migrating to Australia wants to live in those cities primarily. So, you know, I, I think um, we've typically seen between 6 and 12% give back when the, when the last five cycles have finished and we've got to the period that we're in right now. There's been between a 6 and a 12%. In fact, the GFC gave back 12%, and that was a, a tough period. Mm. I think we're going to match that. I think we've gone close to matching that now, and I, I suspect there could be a few percent fall to come, and I think that'll happen next year. Mm. Um, now, at the end of that, there's one of two things that'll either, in my view, this time next year, will go into a stable pattern and will just hold for a few years while people catch their breath before the next cycle, um, or there could be a, a short mini rebound because uh, when the market that's been sitting on the sidelines watching what's happening decides that it has reached rock bottom, it comes back in. So mm. at some point, I was talking to a friend of mine that's looking to buy the other day, and they said to me, maybe I'll wait. And I said, look, here's the problem. 10 to 12% is probably going to be the give back. We've seen most of that. Um, you can't pick the bottom of the market, and you can't pick the top of the market. All we know is that you know, you're buying 10% better than last year, and you're not going to sell for a decade, so you may as well get in sooner than later if you find something that you love. Yeah. It's just impossible to kind of round it up and, and finesse it to a month or a quarter. You've just got to say, well, now seems like a pretty good time to buy back in. Okay, John, so that's, that's sort of the big picture. Let's, um, one of the questions we always get from listeners is about hot spots and where they should be looking. I was going to so, ask that too. Yeah. So uh, maybe we could, we'll put you on the spot and uh, what are your current... Hot spots, Hot but, spots. but Paul, I've got, to, I've got to give John a, a bit of a rap here. I remember about six or seven years ago on my TV show, he actually tried to convince me that the area around Moore Park Supercentre would actually, well, yeah, in, 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 in Sydney, and so that's like the drive from the airport where there used to be like the the old uh, P seventy six Leyland factory, <laughs> and there was like f- crummy old factories and all that sort of stuff. And John said, "This is going to be the growth area." Well, you go there now; it's actually it's be- it's become a suburb in its own right of all apartments everywhere. It's staggering. Yeah, Pete, look, that, that whole Green Square and Victoria Green Square, Square yeah. and you're right, as you get the airport on the right. I thought you were on medication <laughs> when you told me that. <laughs> no, look, that, 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 that's, that's a, a good example, and we try each year, Paul, to kind of pick a couple of areas that we think. Look, none of the areas we've picked are, are I, I think, you know, they're not things that no one else would have seen, but we're just looking for a little bit of extra value. When I took a look in Sydney, I mean, Maroubra Beach, for example, you know, you look at the the cost of Bondi Beach and Bronte Beach and even Coogee now, and for many families, and even for young people trying to buy one-bedroom apartments, become unaffordable. You know, we think Maroubra will be the next suburb to go. It's had some growth. It's a well-respected suburb, but it's nothing like its neighbouring areas. So from a beach site, I mean, people want to be close to the city and close to the coast if they can. I mean, having said that, this report does talk about the renaissance of Western Sydney, which I think is also true. But, you know, if you can put your investment dollar a little bit closer to the city, if you can afford it, and on the other side of the bridge, we've also picked uh, Avalon Beach. We think Avalon's got mm-hmm. great infrastructure. 
I mean, if anything ever happens with the spit bridge and the tunnel there and there's a way again to get under that, values will rocket up there because that's the only thing that holds people back from, from buying on the northern beaches. But uh, I think you know, those two areas, if you were looking to invest in Sydney, you wouldn't go wrong mm. you know, buying in either Maroubra Beach or Avalon Beach. Yeah. Anything um, you want to nominate outside Sydney, John? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you, happy to give you a couple. Um, Paul, we've got uh, our, our fastest growing Queensland offices are on the Sunshine Coast at the moment, and partly because they've got very good people in them, but also partly because there's just a great real estate market up there and a lot of people are discovering it. Noose has been well discovered for a long time by very many wealthy southerners but you know, the other areas and we have mentioned uh, Maroochydore mm-hmm. in this report there's a lot of infrastructure happening it's an hour north of Brisbane it's a beautiful coastal environment access to the airport and you know we think that's a, also a great area whether you're looking for a sea change or you're looking for an investment that's more affordable than Sydney we think that's also uh, a great area um, down in Melbourne, um, an area we like down south is called Bond Beach, which is sort of just south of, you know, that Brighton, Sandringham area, which is also, you know, pretty well known. But yep. mm-hmm. there are a number of beaches just south of there that, you know, another 10, 15 minute drive. And you've got this beautiful bayside suburb, which is, you know, affordable um, compared with inner Melbourne. So. They're the sort of areas we try and look for, and the report's got you know a whole range of other suburbs, but there there are a few that we think will will go quite well. Okay, mate. So if someone wants to get their hands on this report, the online version, do, do they just simply Google McGrath report? Yeah, if they go to our website, Pete, thank you, mcgrath.com.au, and on the front page of the website, sort of towards the bottom of the front page, there's a, a tile that says McGrath Report 2019. Uh, which is, you know, the report going forward. And if they download it there, then they can get the digital copy. And most of our offices from today onwards will have hard copies as well. So feel free to pop in. But you can get one from your laptop just by going to our website. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, John. That, of course, was John McGrath, the founder of McGrath Estate Agents. And it's now time for a word from our sponsor. And now... A word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Now, here's Switzy. And, of course, I always throw in that that uh, interest rate that that very urgent lady was talking about is our headline rate, but it's exactly the same as our comparison rate because there are no fees or charges in between. Okay, for a long time, Paul Rickard and myself have been railing against the stupidity of the superannuation system such that some business owners don't pay the compulsory superannuation. Now, Paul, it seems to me ridiculous we call it compulsory superannuation and people don't pay it. Well, they don't, Peter, and we've had uh, so many calls over the years from people that have found when their employer's gone out of business or they've left their employer and some months later they've gone to check their superannuation balance and found, hey, presto, (laughs) not there. there's nothing there. And often it's too late, and at the, the moment they're forced to, you know, we've, as we've said to them, the tax office has got the responsibility, but mm. they go to the ATO and often not a lot happens. It, yeah. It's a real issue, and, and it's every time we bring this issue up, we get people calling up and saying something's happened to their super. In other words, 
their employer hasn't yeah. paid it. And when it first happened and we got these questions, we thought that the ATA would have some sort of process, but we found that they really don't. You know, they, they care about it, but they don't have a system or the resources to make sure that something gets done. Now, Bernie Dean, who's the CEO of Industry Super Australia, he's uh, you know, drawing attention to it, and he thinks he's got at least an improved method of making people pay the superannuation and also making it uh, uh, encouraging employees to actually check to make sure the money's going in. So without any further ado, let's go to the Chief Executive of Industry Super Australia, Bernie Dean. Thanks for joining us, Bernie. Thanks very much. Paul. So this is something that really has uh, annoyed uh, Paul and myself for a number of years, uh, particularly being somewhat you know, a, a couple of blokes who care about superannuation. The fact that lots of employers are not doing what they're supposed to do. Bernie, how come no government seems to be keen to do anything about this? Well, um, I don't know. I can't explain why successive governments haven't tackled this, but the solution is staring each of them in the face and it's pretty simple uh, we've got um, uh, we've got a problem the size of um, uh, six billion dollars uh, and a solution that would make it um, a lot less than that would be to make it mandatory for employers to pay super into a workers account at the same time as salary is paid the fact that that change has has eluded successive governments is a wonder to us yeah uh, one of the um, things that has been suggested, Bernie, in the past is just to uh, get people or get employers to print the super on their payslip. I don't know whether people get payslips these days. I guess they get something electronic. Is yeah, it? Yeah. But that's a little different from actually paying it at the time when you pay wages, isn't it? That's right. Um, most we should we should point out from the outset that most employers do do the right thing. Yep. Um, about uh, well, over 50% of employers actually do pay super um, as part of uh, people's salary on a, a monthly or a fortnightly basis. That's what the ATO data tells us. But there are a lot of employers, sadly, that don't. Um, and they, in many cases, are printing on their employees' pay slips the super contributions that they are meant to make. But mm. what we're finding from this data is that a couple of months down the track, even though it might have appeared on a payslip, it's not actually getting paid into the super account of the employee. Okay, so I would have always presumed, as a group, industry super funds have a vested interest in making sure that there is a system that ensures that the money actually comes in. Bernie, am I right in assuming that? And secondly, is it very difficult for a super fund to have the, the processes in place, so the the flag or the uh, the alarm bell goes off when an employer is not making those payments. It's extremely difficult. Um, uh, industry super funds have a, a tenuous relationship, obviously, with the uh, with many employees, and because of the lack of engagement, a lot of people don't don't think to check their super account that often. Mm. So it's not unusual for um, uh, people to get six months down the track and whether it be by change of employment or uh, making a choice about super funds, that's when they might twig. But the um, industry super funds, like other super funds, don't actually have much capacity to find out in their systems when something's going wrong because, at the moment, 
the laws around when an employer needs to pay super are quite loose, mm. like up to you know four times a year. It's not um, it's not adequate. And and by changing it to your solution, which is you make it requirement or under law a requirement whenever they pay wages. I mean, does that still cover, make make it the situation of sort of one hundred percent foolproof or? Could we still find that you change the law, employers are required to pay it but don't pay it? There'll, sadly, there will always be some employers that um, uh, that want to shirk their responsibilities for legal entitlements, uh, as we have with other entitlements, whether it be work cover or salary itself. But if you draw super into line with salary, you are going to eradicate, we think, the majority of this problem. Uh, that if um, employees uh, are able to, um, with confidence, know that super is being paid into their uh, account when their salary is paid into their bank account, uh, then if something doesn't happen within a couple of weeks or a month, um, they'll, they're more likely to raise the flag at that point. At the moment, there's no warning system for people, really. Yeah, Bernie, what's the vision like? Because um, I, I run a self-managed super fund, so I, I'm not sure exactly what's going on in industry super funds nowadays. But what's the vision like for members of an industry fund to actually see that the money's gone in or not? Uh, it's uh, it's a lot clearer than what it was even five five or six years ago. Yeah. Uh, I'm a member of an industry super fund, uh, and I'm that I'm not that savvy, mm-hmm. but I have an online online account. Um, I only generally go in there about two or three times a year. Uh, that's to check on things uh, like um, how my, how, uh, whether my balance has grown. Yep. But if I can do it, and uh, that means that uh, anybody under the age of 50 should have a, a reasonable chance of logging on to their, industry, uh, onto their fund uh, website, uh, getting their membership details, and then checking whether things are going in. Okay, and, and does the, the information online show you the contributions as well as the balance yes it does it tells you uh it tells you the exact um uh, times that uh, that the my employer here mm. uh, made the contributions and how much they were uh so i can see um that um uh, that the money that appeared on my pay slip um every fortnight actually made it into the super account so it seems to me it's an education program as well we should be telling all employees to at least do a monthly check to see how your super's going. That's right, and it's not um, it's not hard. Um, you can start with your employer, but if you don't feel comfortable doing that, a phone call to your super fund or checking uh, online um, is a good thing. If you do have concerns, uh, you can go to the ATO, but sadly we have seen uh, in recent years that um, uh, while a lot of people are going to the ATO, the ATO isn't really stepping up to the plate in terms of um, holding uh, employers accountable. Yes, so we think that... Um, sorry? I was going to say, certainly the feedback we've had is the ATO has uh, been a little bit slow off the mark, perhaps under-resourced. Mm. Um, can I just pick up two other things that sort of cause problems out there um, and sort of relate to sort of the number of the calls we've had over many years? The other one, or the first one, is about contractors, and often, you know, some employee, employers saying to their staff, "You're actually a contractor, and therefore you don't, you're not entitled to super." So, in some cases, people accept that and discover many years later that they've got no super, and when things go wrong, mm. so we have that sort of that issue around: is a contract get super or not? Seems to be a problem. And then, mm. 
The other one is sort of the people working earning less than $450 a month uh, and some of the issues that causes. Do you have a position on both those things that, uh, uh, that you're pushing on behalf of the industry? Yes. Uh, let's, uh, it, it's no secret that the hot spot for, um, uh, for losing out on um, your super entitlements is in that precarious employment. Uh, so if you're young, uh, if you're in casual or part-time employment, and you're, um, uh, which can often be uh, unstable uh, or precarious, then you're more than likely to miss out on some of your super. Uh, that um, uh, that's something that we're concerned about. We we want the uh, super guarantee to be applied to um, workers for the work that they do, um, and we've been pursuing that um, a policy recently. Uh, the threshold that you talk about, about $450 at the moment, employers are required only to make super contributions for employees who, who earn $450 uh, or more a month. Um, we think that that's, um, uh, that's, it's time for that threshold to be removed um, and we've uh, put, it to, um, uh, put it to both the opposition and the government. Uh, we learnt last week that the opposition... Um, is uh, committed to phasing the, the uh, threshold out, which we think is a good thing. Uh, but um, uh, instead of phasing it out, we do think that, that the time has come for anybody that, that does any work should, should get paid super on top of their salary. Mm. Bernie, w- what are the industries where people should be the most scared? Um, it's... Um, uh, we've, we've, we've isolated uh, some, uh, some, some of those kind of like risk factors. If you're in... Um, if you're young, uh, if you're below, if you're earning below thirty thousand dollars a year, and if you're in uh, trades or in um, uh, manual labour or service industries, you're more than likely to experience um, uh, the super ripoff, as some people have called it. Okay. And have you talked to government and the people you're talking to? Are they showing any new level of enthusiasm for fixing up this problem we've got? Um, the government, the government has over the last year and a half has been looking at the problem, uh, but it hasn't really extended beyond looking at the problem. Uh, there's a couple of changes that they've suggested, uh, but they're at the fringes. Things like um, making sure that employers can't use uh, uh, the the contributions um, over and above um, an employee's super guarantee and counting them against their own obligations removing that loophole, but we just don't think that that goes anywhere near far, far enough. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I've been comforted in recent weeks um, that uh, the noises out of government are, uh, are getting a little bit louder, that they recognise that this, is, this problem uh, is growing and that um, it's been a year and a half now since the Senate inquiry came down with 32 recommendations for change and there has been very little progress made against any of them. Okay, mate. Well, thanks for um, waving the flag on a really important issue. Thank you very much for your time. That's Bernie Dean, Industry Super Australia's Chief Executive. Coming up after the break, we'll be looking at some questions that we need to answer that you've sent to us, which we think are pretty important. And now, a word from our sponsors. Have you got a home loan? Do you know what you're being charged? Check your rate, and if it's more than 3.89%, call us at Switzer Home Loans. Our rate for a variable home loan is 3.89%. That's right, 
3.89% is all you'll pay. Interested? Call 1300 664 339 or Google Switzer Home Loans. Too many people spend money they earned to buy things they don't want to impress people that they don't like. So stick with Switzer and get rich. Where are my teeth? Well, I at least uh, anticipated that old bloke asking where his teeth is today, um, this week. Uh, and now it's time, as I said, we're going to answer your questions. And the first one is a very interesting one. It comes from uh, Jeff, and Jeff um, uh, has said to us, I would be interested to hear your views on the dire warnings of Harry S. Dent and his book, Zero Hour. Do you feel that the bull run on the US market has been up there for so long and so upward and with global economic conditions as they are, that emerging markets and the US market in particular are about to fall off the cliff? Now, it's a pretty long question, Paul. So he's basically saying, do you think Harry Dent, who's predicting an upcoming crash of the stock market, is imminent? Paul, what do you reckon? Well, I'm going to throw this back to you, Peter, okay. because... I know that you've had a couple of clashes with uh, Harry S. Dent before. In a very gentlemanly way. In a very one. gentleman way. Yeah. And so I know you've got a very pretty firm opinion about this. So, yeah. Peter. Yeah, I think, I think Harry Dent is a guy who, in the past, has got it right at least once. He probably tells you more than that. Um, and I, I think one day he'll be right again. Um, there will be a crash of the stock market. Um, but I just think he's called it too early. Um, I think... And he has called, been calling this for some time. At least is, three years. Yeah. At least three years. So maybe he's been, four. He's, he's been on my TV show at least two times. Plus we did, did him here a year ago. And, yeah, Harry is the guy who's always calling it. Fortunately for him, there are people in the media who forget or they're new to the media. And he'll get it right... Yeah, when the crash does eventually come, people say, oh, this guy calls it. But a lot of people would have got out of the market like they did with Steve Keem. A lot of people sold their real estate in 2009 when Steve was predicting mm-hmm. property Armageddon. And uh, this guy here, in one of, his, one of his original arguments, Paul, was that um, as people get older, they'll start drawing their money out of the stock market. But what he got wrong was that we're actually living longer. And so people aren't drawing stuff money out of the market, stock market as quickly as he thought. They're actually staying in the market. So my view is that Harry is a much better salesman than he is a predictor of economic cycles. So, look, on a daily basis, I am continually monitoring the kinds of things that I think will pre- tell us when something really serious is happening. At the moment, this um, particular stock market run isn't all that long. Um, on average, it's nine years or so. We've gone about nine years. On average, they, they um, well, the long ones, the long ones go up you know, 12 years, 15 years, mm-hmm. and they go up 800 to 900%. We're up in America by about 340%. And in Australia, we're up by 120, 130 if you add in dividends. So I just think that it's too early to believe Harry's right, Paul. Yeah, look, I have a... Look, I, I share your views, Peter, and I perhaps could he be break it all down to uh, a very simplistic view about markets. Hmm. They can only go in two directions, up or down. So if you're calling one of the directions, you've got a 50% chance of being right. Yeah. And what we do know is that when markets go down, they go down quite hard. So this guy will be right at some stage. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. He'll get it right eventually. Yeah. But, you know, you could cost yourselves thousands and thousands of dollars by 
waiting for him to be right. And uh, mm. at the moment, I don't think they're hot. So do I think it's going to happen this month? No. Could I be wrong? Yes. But uh, will Harry be right eventually? Yeah. One day. I, I'm, I'm saying to everyone, 2020 could be the time. Uh, and I've been saying for probably three or four years, I, I remember saying, uh, 2018, I'm comfortable. 2019, I'll start looking cautiously because, you know, the the Economist Intelligence Unit and I think um, Goldman Sachs have thought a tip, maybe 2020 would be the next US recession. Uh, and markets tend to get in ahead of it. So somewhere in 2019, I could be even more cautiously looking at the problems. But for the moment, I'm not worried. Okay, I think we've done Harry That's the death answer. to yep. death, right? Yep. <laughs> I'm not, I guess in simple uh, summaries, I'm not mad about Harry. Okay, our next question comes from Daniel. It says, thanks for the question. I missed the discussion on this at the webinar. That's the Switzer Report webinar, which we held about two weeks ago. I'm not sure that I can answer it because there is no... So this is a discussion about sort of the... Oh, this is your answer to the question, yeah, Paul. No, no, okay. So this, this, this is a discussion about clutching... Um, a falling knife. A falling knife. Don't, and Charlie said, don't catch a falling knife. So let's explain to readers what a falling knife yeah, is. Yeah, so when, is, a, when a market is falling or when a stock price is falling... Some people you know, try and get in there and catch a falling knife. And what Charlie said was, let it fall and let it hit bottom and let it vibrate. Now, the vibrating bit, I think, is when uh, the price so, so starts. Daniel's question is, how do you know when it's yeah, falling? And the, and the how, answer how, is, you don't know when that knife has stopped falling. So, But obviously, there are ways in which you can test it out. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're noticing that, for example, Afterpay is falling at the moment. Mm -hmm. Afterpay yep. is a falling knife. Yep. And, and the last price I saw before we came on air was around the $11 mark. It might be even lower today. Now, I would want to see it hit maybe $10 or $9 and then go up and maybe go down and go up and go down. And that would be like the, the vibrating mm -hmm. knife, I think. But once it stopped, and that would be when, say, the price gets to $11 again, that's when I might say, I think it's stopped. It's now time to get back in. There could be other factors. It could be like a dead cat bounce, as some mm -hmm. people might say. But I think the fact that you see it going up and down for a while and then the uptick happens, that has been a, a thing I've used in the past. I used it for BHP. I wanted to buy it at $14. No one would support me on my TV show, not even including you, Paul Rickard. But once it got into the 15s, I started getting a bit cocky. At $15.80, I thought, yes, the vibration was over. It was starting to rise. I think you got it around $16 or so, didn't you? Yeah. And, and, and that's what you, you effectively did. You made sure that BHP hit rock bottom, knife stuck. It was vibrating for a while. And then once you saw it get into the 15s and 16s, you hang on, that fall is over. Yeah, the, the comments I made, Peter, was it's still more art than science, yeah. and there is no formula around this, but there are, you know, Technicians look at things like moving averages, and so they look at when short-term moving averages cross long-term moving averages, and so you can get various definitions from other analysts out there, but I think you've got to be... You know, it's very hard to actually describe exactly when it is, but you've got to let it bounce around a little bit and try to find a bottom and then yeah. have confidence it's found a bottom. And sometimes mm. that means you won't buy it at the bottom, you'll buy yeah. it after the bottom. Yeah. Uh, let's take, take us back to Woolworths. Now, Woolworths was around $36, $37 when it started the fall, didn't it? Mm -hmm. They got into the 20s and around... I, I, think, I bet you a lot of people bought it at 23 and $24. It's a $13 fall. Now, it had to get to about $21 before it started to vibrate, didn't it? Yep. And, and there were still people coming on my show and the stuff that we, we wrote about in the Switzer Report thinking it was going to go below 20. 
and they were proved wrong. And at, but at 22 or 23, that wasn't a bad time to buy. And I think that's the kind of, as you say, it's more art than science, but I think once you hit those bottoms, you see that bottom form, and then the kick-up happens, I think you can take the gamble that that's the, the, the right time to get in there. Now, this is another question from Dean Morris. He says, I don't hold any reject shop shares, but TRS has today fallen 40% odd. That's the re reject shop. Not sure why such a huge fall on a revised profit or earnings forecast. Do you have any views on this? Is it overdone? Is it a buying opportunity for a potential recovery, maybe 10 or 15% short term? Or is it a dog with fleas and best left alone? Yeah, look, this is a tough one because uh, TRS, that's the reject shop, came out with a profit warning last week, and that's what the, uh, they're, they're referring to. It's dropped yeah. Big drop, than, isn't it, 40%? More than 40%. Look, I, I caution on this one. Um, I don't know enough about the company, but what I do know is that that the retailers, it's, if, I've had to pick one of the hardest sectors in the market to understand mm. is discretionary retailers. Yep. Not your Woolworths or your, or your Coles or you know, your, the, 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 the big grocery stores, but the, the guys involved in selling things uh, like the reject shop, it's really hard for an outsider, an investor, to, to get a really good handle on what's going on. Yep. And I think this, if I, this, is, this is a very difficult sector. So... And we know that in this sector, there are a lot of short sellers who are very active. They're active for a couple of reasons. One is that they know retail is doing it tough. They're worried about Amazon, the whole disruption impact that's occurring. You know, they, they see big long-term trends in this sector. And I think, as I said to uh, this, this, this questioner, it's probably something I just wouldn't even bother about. Mm. I just let it go. Or, or, or if you're going to... Get in there and have a dabble. Be brave. Now, I will make the comment that it had a 40% fall and it then fell on the following next days after that. So sometimes the these things, when they go through a big mm. profit down cycle like this, usually the worst news is not over straight away. So history says don't get in there. It's still a falling knife. It's still a falling knife. I don't think you've got any reason to, to see yet that mm. stock has bottomed. And even if it had bottomed, look, it's just a, mm. it's just a really hard thing to... I'm not trying to bag the reject shop. I'm just saying it's a really hard yeah. industry to understand. You don't want to reject the reject shop. I don't want to reject the reject <laughs> shop, but my experience says that if mm. you know, I've invested in mining stocks, mm. banks, you know, uh, health companies, retailers are just hard. Yep. And the interesting thing, over the years, the reject shop does go up big time, then falls big time. Uh, and, and I think there probably will be a buying opportunity because I think they're, they're well-placed shops, but they have much more, many more rivals today than, say, five years ago because, you know, Aldi is now selling stuff um, and a lot of the – there's a lot of, like, dollar shops and all that sort of stuff which weren't there. And they, I think those shops opened up because Reject Shop was doing so well. It's a much more competitive space. It's an industry going through massive disruption and, and if you uh – Every week, or every day, for example, ASIC publishes the list of stocks that are, that are short sold. Mm. In fact, on our Saturday edition, oh, up, we have a table that shows you the, the top 20 stocks by short sale, short positions. Mm. And week after week after week, in that top 20 are five or six retailers. Yeah. And there is a lot of And some good ones, too. And some good ones. You know, in Harvey Norman and JB Hi Fi. You know, there are a lot of professional money out there saying they're going to do it over the next. One, two, three, five years. Going to do it. It's going to be really difficult being a retailer because of the online impact that uh, Amazon and others are going to have. And mm. so, 
they're not buying it, they're selling it, they've taken a view, and they're, gonna, they're very patient investors, these guys. They're not looking yeah. at what happens tomorrow. They're looking out the next couple of years. So yeah. I reckon you're betting against the professionals. I'm not saying don't buy the reject shop, but mm. be very careful. Yeah, and Dean, next week's show, I'll ask a few people around the place to see what they think, but uh, I think Paul's given you a pretty good analysis of, uh, of uh, the difficulties for retailers and particularly reject shop in this point in time. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And next week we'll be trying to uh, catch up with a few experts who will tell us whether it's the right time to invest in the stock market. Is that buying opportunity going to come after the midterm elections? That's going to be a big theme for next week. Britain time! Britain time! <laughs>